All right, our New Testament reading this morning is in the book of John, chapter 7. One small verse in the chapter 7, we'll go right into 8. 7.53, finishing at chapter 8, verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. They went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Praise his name. Our sermon text is in the book of Hosea. After Daniel, if that helps. (laughs) And we're reading chapter 2, starting in verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to, you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. May that be our prayer. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Amen. So good to be with you this morning. Once again, uh, we are growing together in our knowledge of the Lord. Uh, We are uh, knowing him as... Alpha and Omega, as our apostle sent to us to save us, as our advocate who pleads our cause in, in the heavenlies. Uh, we've seen him as the angel of the Lord making uh, pre-incarnate appearances uh, to chosen people. Uh, he is the amen. He has the final word uh, on everything. He is the ascended one where he serves as our a sympathetic uh, high priest and ruling and reigning king. He is the branch, the righteous branch. Uh, He is the bread of life, the bright morning star. He is our bridegroom and our beloved. And we are his. And we are taking great joy in this corporate endeavor of growing in the knowledge of the one who saved us the one who laid down his life for us, the one who has given us a new heart 
a new purpose, a reason to live. So by looking at these names, we are getting to know him better. And by growing in the knowledge of the Lord, we are all growing spiritually. How do we know that? Because that's what God said would happen. When we behold the glory of the Lord, and we're doing it, we're doing it by looking at his names, for in his names we see the different multifaceted aspects of his transcendent glory. And as we behold that glory together, the Bible says we are being transformed into his image from glory to glory. So let's pray that that will happen for every believer here today and for any unbelievers that are here that God would open their eyes for the very first time to see the beauty of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said, We are warranted in using all the various names of God or Jesus, for each has its own beauty and majesty. And we must reverence each by its holy use. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, help us know Jesus better today. In these next few minutes, help us all to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we behold these glorious names that you have given your son. Oh God, give us a deeper love for Jesus. And for those that don't know him, we cry out with one heart, please, Lord, save them. For your glory and their good and our joy. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the corporate meditation of our hearts together today be pleasing in your sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All righty. Ty read our springboard text, Hosea chapter 2. Let me repeat the last two verses, 19 and 20. And I want you to notice three things. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Okay? A few things to note. Number one, God initiates this betrothal. God initiates it. He says, I will betroth you. Okay, Israel brings nothing to the marriage. Just like us in salvation, we bring nothing to our conversion. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. God makes all the promises and provides all the dowry. Our bridegroom lays down his life for us, his bride, and we receive the benefits. Second thing to note, the emphasis of repetition. I will betroth you 
that four-word phrase is repeated three times or stated three times. We might not appreciate this as much as Hebrews did because in Hebrew, repetition was one of the key methods of emphasis. If the writer in Hebrew wanted you to really, really pay attention to something, they would repeat it. Examples, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, okay? Uh, Truly, truly, listen up. When Jesus says that, listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you. So repetition was key for Hebrew. And in this case, in this text, God wants us to know that he does the betrothing. And there's no maybe about it. You know, I might betroth you to myself. If you get your act together, I might bring you to the uh, wedding altar. You know, uh, if you clean up your act, then I'll think about betroth. No, no, I will. I will betroth you to me three times. God does the wooing and God does the drawing. And he wants us to know that because he said it three times in the space of only two verses. Well, and what did Jesus say? Jesus, being God, obviously would agree with God the Father. God the Son would necessarily agree with God the Father in John 6, 44. What did Jesus say? He said, no one, no one, universal negative, not a single individual, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, woos him, allures him, betroths him. And in Hosea, God has promised to do that. And Jesus confirms that by saying, no one can come to me unless God does this. And God does it. For most people in here, God has done that gloriously and undeservedly and and joyfully, gratefully. We're blown away. And for the handful that are in here that, that hasn't happened yet, we're praying with all of our hearts together that he will betroth you to himself, that he will draw you to Jesus. Because unless he does that, there's no hope. Because we can't save ourselves, as many think they can do. We, we don't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. God has to do it. Third thing I want you to know is the result. Look at the result. I will betroth you, I will betroth you, I will betroth you, and guess what? You shall know the Lord. See, you see the order. God betroths us to him, and we come to know him. It just happens. There's, it, it happens. You can't, if you're saved, listen, if you're saved, if you're truly a Christian, you cannot not know God, and you cannot not grow in that knowledge. So if you're not growing in that knowledge, that's not a good sign. Maybe the betrothal hasn't happened yet. Well, I I got good, if that's true for you, I got good news for you. Today's the day. Today's the day of salvation. Today's your wedding day. Today's the day of betrothal. 
We're begging God will betroth you to himself, and that will begin the process of you knowing God. The result is automatic. It happens. When you're married to Jesus, you come to know him, and you grow in that knowledge of him. So the basic message of our springboard sermon text is salvation results in knowing the Lord. You shall know the Lord, not you might know the Lord. Not if you're one of the spiritual elite that gets the second act of grace, you might know the Lord. No, no, you shall know the Lord. You shall. And believers will grow in that knowledge. We will grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And one of the ways we work that out, Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 4 verse 13, it is God who works in you, both the will and to work for his good pleasure. And his will is that we know him and that we know his son. Because Jesus said in John 17.3 that this is eternal life, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. Don't you love the Bible? Don't you love how the Bible just connects? It just all connects. It's just a beautiful oneness and unity of, of theology. So one of the ways we work that out is by studying his names. Studying the names of Jesus is one of the ways we work out what God is working in us, namely growth in the knowledge of who he is. So join with me today. Join with me today in studying these names, okay? We're moving alphabetically now. We're moving to the letters C and D today. And as I said, it's, it's, it's held true. The hardest part of this study is which names are we not going to do. And I've decided I'm not going to do the, the paper, you know, uh, review of the names. As we said, we're going to get to a point when I can't, where I can't repeat all the names that we've studied but I'm not going to do the paper thing because you got to update it every week and you're just wasting reams of paper. So I'll send that to you electronically. Besides, if you use the seat savers, you'd have the list, okay? If you use the sermon sheets, you'd automatically have the list and just stick them in a notebook and there you go. And some of you precious people do that. I'm so encouraged to hear you, to hear people say they do that or put it on their phone. Okay, wait, I got you, buddy. I got you. I, I get it. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, yes. All right. So moving to the letter. Letter C and D today. Number one, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Christ. Listen to Matthew 16. Very familiar with this. We've looked at this text many times. Uh, now, beginning at verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Okay, there's Son of Man right there, okay. Uh, but we're not at S yet, so we can't cover that yet. But, uh, and, uh, and, and Chris, by the way, you know, hey, way to figure it out, buddy. Isaiah 44, 6 had a bunch of names, right? Well, we're doing a study on the names. So, uh, okay, yeah, all right. So there you go. Okay, way to go, Chris. Way to figure that out, bub. Uh, are you in here? Are you okay? You're not, okay, and he's smiling. Good, you're not mad at me. Okay, great. Okay, Isaiah, that, that's the purpose, okay? That was Isaiah 44, 6 had a lot of names in it. And hopefully every month while we're in this study, our memory verse will, will, will be like that with several names in it, okay? Uh, so, um, Son of Man, who do, you, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say 
John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? See, because it doesn't really matter what everybody else says about who Jesus is. All that matters is who do you say that he is? And please know, great example is not a choice. Wonderful teacher is not a choice. Great guy is not a choice. Moral individual is not a choice. Because a person who said he was God and wasn't God is either a lunatic or a liar. Okay? So don't, as C.S. Lewis said, don't come to me with any this patronizing nonsense of what a great person Jesus was if you don't believe he's God. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, Lord are the only three choices. Okay? So let's make sure we understand that very clearly. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. Notice the Christ, the definite article. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, a lot of people erroneously think that Christ is Jesus' last name. Hey, Mr. Christ. Okay, no, that, it's not his last name, okay? It, but it's so often used that many in, our, in America think that's his last name. But it's not a name. Whether it's a title that refers to his position and work as the Messiah, the promised Messiah. Christ, the word Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which is used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah, Mashiach. It literally means anointed one. So Peter was basically saying, you are the anointed one. You are the one who has been promised since the garden. From the Reformed tradition, the tra tradition by, that we're in, by the way, if you don't realize that. Okay. From the Reformed tradition, the concept of Messiah has at least three elements. He would be a prophet. Okay. Moses told God's people in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So he'd be a prophet. Secondly, he'd be a priest. The Messiah would be a priest. We've already studied high priest, okay? Psalm 110, verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Peter, the apostle Peter, referred to that verse uh, on Pentecost, the first sermon of the of the so-called church age, okay, after the Holy Spirit came, Peter referred to that passage. And then thirdly, not only would the Messiah be a prophet and a king and a priest, he would also be a king. He would be a king. He would be from the line of David, the promise made in the Davidic covenant, and he would rule over an eternal kingdom. Remember what Jesus told uh, Pilate? Right before he went to the cross, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. When Paul says, so you are a king, you are a king. Well, my, yeah, but my kingdom is not of this world. It's not an earthly kingdom. 
And that's why everybody was so disappointed. That's why they wound up crucified. That's why the two disciples were walking so forlornly down the Emmaus Road. We had hoped, we had hoped that we would be delivered politically. Listen, guys, you got something a lot better than a political deliverance. Okay? You got a spiritual deliverance paid for by the blood of Jesus. But that's another story for another day. Okay, so uh, he'd be a prophet, a priest, a king. In second, let me give you the verse for the king promise. Second Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13, we read this. God told Nathan to tell David this, quote, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay? You say, well, some people say, well, okay, well, he's just talking about Solomon. Okay? He's just talking about Solomon. Offspring after you, come from your body. Uh, I'll establish his kingdom, earthly kingdom, uh, kingdom of Israel on the earth. He shall build a house for my name. See, there's, there's Solomon. But then it says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's what points us to Jesus. And the other things do too. Jesus is building a house for his name, right? Us, the church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus was a man. He did come from David's body. He was in the line of David. And his kingdom has been established. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he's ruling and reigning right now, even over all this chaos and clown show that we see, Brother Chad. Yes, Jesus is ruling and reigning over that. And one day he's going to come and consummate it completely, and we're going to be in the perfect new heavens and new earth under the perfect reign of Jesus. So there's the Davidic covenant. The Messiah would be a prophet, as Moses promised. He would be a priest, as the psalmist promised. He would be a king, as the prophet Nathan promised. So this multifaceted description of the promised Messiah, the the promised Christ, caused a lot of confusion and disagreement among the Jews. As we've already mentioned, they were all despondent when Jesus died. They thought that he was going to deliver them politically and, and economically, and he was going to be a king, earthly king, right then and there. They asked what they were longing for. They longed for the conquering king, okay? When Jesus didn't fit that bill at his first coming, they called for his crucifixion. But the Messiah in the Old Testament was also called to be the servant of God. Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant in Isaiah's prophecy. So the concept of conquering king and suffering servant to the Jews of Jesus' day seemed impossible to unite in one person. But for us living on this side of the cross, we can look back and see, yes, Yes, they obviously did go together. Throw in priest and prophet and the glorious complexity of Jesus is further enhanced. 
And the more we realize the complex concept of the Messiah, the more amazed, and rightly so, we are at the intricate way in which all these strands are woven together in the person and work of Jesus. And I can see why Michael Carr wrote that line in one of his older songs. Give up on your pondering and fall down on your knees. Give up trying to figure it out. Although with study, we can. We can see how conquering king, suffering servant goes together. And even if we can or even if we don't, the call to fall down on our knees still stands. This is Jesus. God in the flesh. The king who laid down his life for his subjects. <laughs> who can figure humanly? How does that work? Well, the Bible tells us how it works. And that's why we open the Bible every Sunday morning. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have Sunday school. We want to know this Messiah, this anointed one, this promised one. Remember the dramatic encounter between Jesus and a grieving sister named Martha outside of a graveyard where her brother Lazarus had been entombed for four days? Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, the big question for today is that is that what you believe? Can you echo this sister's words? I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. I hope so. I sure hope so. Oh, man, we could say so much more about this title, but we must move on. Number two, Jesus is the cornerstone. We sang that while ago, the cornerstone. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Why? Because the Messiah has come. <laughs> the Christ has come to save you. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. They're, they're, we're being built together into a dwelling place for God. Isn't that beautiful? 
Jesus is the basic foundational element in the temple of the Lord, which is the church of which every believer is a part. That's why you don't, I was talking to somebody before the service, dear brother, and that, this is why you don't date the church. This is why you don't just pop in and out of a church here and a church there, or even the same church. You, you commit to it. You become a part of it. You marry it, in effect. Because that's the picture of what God is doing with the church. He's, as living stones, He's placing us together into this temple of the Lord, this, this body of Christ, this, this thing called the church. And it's not just a passing fancy. It's not just a, a club like your fitness club or your rotary club or your civitan club or whatever it's the body of christ and it calls for membership it calls for commitment it calls for submission mutual submission not just to a body of elders to one another ephesians 5 20 submit to one another out of what? Reverence for the Lord. Got to get off this rabbit trail, but I'm pumped because we got a new members class starting next week. So membership means something here. So if you're thinking about me in that class, know that right up front on day one. Membership means something here. We're not just going to put your name on a list and then forget about you. And I hope the reverse will be true. I hope you won't be content to get your name on a list and then forget about us. I pray people are watching this right there that needed to hear that just then. But that's another sermon for another day. Okay, where were we? Cornerstone. Man, what a rabbit trail. Come back. Where was I? Okay, Jesus. Basic foundational, foundational element in this temple of the Lord, the church. He's the solid rock. We sang it. He's the solid rock foundation on which the church is built and from which we get our strength. God tells us this in Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. Okay, now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Okay, there's, a, there's the cornerstone verse from the Old Testament, or one of them. And then it ends by saying, whoever believes will not be in haste. Now, what is this saying? Well, you got to go to the Hebrew. In Hebrew, to be in haste doesn't mean you just scurrying around and hurrying around and always it mean it meant to panic to be overcome by fear so when the old testament says whoever believes will not be in haste it is saying whoever believes will not panic 
You'll never get in a panicky state. Whoever believes will not be overcome by fear. Whoever has Jesus as the cornerstone of their life will not live a panicky life. Even when things are going haywire, there'll be calmness in the midst of the storm. They will not be ruled by fear. How many times in the Bible do you read, fear not? Both old and new, fear not. Angels came to the shepherds announcing the birth of Jesus. Fear not. Angel comes to Mary. Fear not. Fear not over and over and over again. Whoever believes will not panic. And if we're ever going to panic, just read the news. Just look at what's going on. But whoever believes Whoever has Jesus as the cornerstone will not panic because we know he's in charge. And this, this old world is going somewhere. And the people of God are pressing on with their eyes on Jesus, not overcome by fear. I think this is what Jesus taught us in Matthew 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, who had me as his cornerstone. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and people were acting insane, and they didn't know what a woman was. And all this insanity was beating on that house, but it did not fall. Because why? It had been founded on the rock. So, beloved, on what are you building your life? On what or on who are you building, on whom are you building your life? Jesus has been rejected by so many over the years. Some of you may be rejecting him right now. The last day will be a day of rude awakening when every Jesus rejecter is made aware of this glorious truth stated by, the, stated by the psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected and that you are rejecting has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of everything, of life of the eternal kingdom, of the new heavens and new earth. He's become the cornerstone. And because you rejected him, you're not going to be there. How sad. Please, today's the day. Is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Are you building your life on him? If not, today's the day. You can start right now, right now. Right now. You don't have to wait till the end of this. Right now. Right now. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Please save me. You can, you can send that up silently right now while I'm speaking. Please. Number three. Christ, cornerstone. Third, he's our counselor. Our counselor. 
Let's play Christmas a little bit. Isaiah 9:6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Counselor. The Messiah will be a counselor. Why counselor? Because we were all born spiritually brain dead, okay? We desperately needed wisdom. True wisdom, not just knowledge. A lot of smart people out there that don't know squat about what really matters. But knowledge based on and guided by God's truth, biblical wisdom, the Spirit-empowered, Spirit-led, Word-saturated ability to think biblically, to look at situations, to look at uh, issues, to look at challenges, to look at problems, and to think biblically about them. To think, what is God's view of this? And, and, and God has given us his view on things. Okay? People search for wisdom. People search for the meaning of life. People search for permanent solutions to their problems. They go to psychologists, and they go to psychiatrists, and they go to analysts, and all sorts of experts. They try everything but the perfect counselor, Jesus Christ, who knows everything and knows the answers to all of our real needs. Not just our felt needs, our real needs. Listen, let me say it again. We were all born naturally, physically, with absolutely zero spiritual insight. Our minds were darkened by the spiritual death that we inherited from Adam. The world is filled with highly educated people who can't answer questions like, who am I? Why am I here? Is there a meaning or purpose to my life? Is there a goal to history? Does does God exist? Apart from God's revelation, no one answers questions like these correctly or sufficiently. And our new Supreme Court justice can't even answer what is a woman. So how is she going to handle these? Well, they're not important to her for one thing. But I pray they'll be important to you. And only the wonderful counselor has the answers to those questions that really matter. So we not only needed a victorious warrior who would crush the serpent, we needed a counselor. We needed a counselor who would, who would help us and, and guide us and equip us in resisting this mortally wounded enemy whose head was crushed at Calvary, but he's still, he's still roaming around seeking whom he can intimidate and harass. We needed one who has all wisdom. We needed one who is wisdom. We needed Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul told us in Colossians. And God, in his rich mercy, sent us the ultimate counselor, 
the Word made flesh, the Counselor who will never leave us nor forsake us, and who speaks wisdom to us through His Word, who speaks wisdom to us through godly biblical teachers, who speaks wisdom to us through biblical counselors, who speaks wisdom to us just in everyday con- conversation through wise brothers and sisters who love us that he puts into our lives. The prophet Isaiah says it so well in Isaiah 28, verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. The psalmist wrote about it. He understood his need for the counselor in Psalm 73. Listen to this, beginning at verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Wow. So, beloved, is your soul embittered? Are you acting brutish? Ignorant? Are the natural tendencies you were born with overcoming the godliness that was given to you at your new birth? At your new birth? That happens in all of our lives, right? We're still fighting this battle against the flesh. That's one of our enemies. World, flesh, devil, three enemies. In that battle, here, listen. Are you listening to the wonderful counselor from the pages of this book and heeding his words to you? He is continually with you. He is forever with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is holding you and guiding you with his counsel found in this book. Are you listening and obeying? And here's what sets Jesus apart from all human counselors. This is where it stops for for people like me and Miss Cheryl and, and godly friends that give you a biblical advice. This is where it stops. This is what makes Jesus the wonderful counselor. Author Warren Wiersbe describes it, quote, we don't leave our counselor's presence merely with good advice. Capital C counselor, okay? He sends us away with the strength we need to do what he tells us to do. Remember the next title? For Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6, after wonderful counselor, yeah, you know it, mighty God. Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he not only instructs us in righteousness, but he also gives us the power through his Holy Spirit to carry out his instruction. And I can't do that. Miss Cheryl can't do that. No biblical human counselor can do that. But Jesus, the wonderful counselor, tells us what to do, sometimes using those people, and then provides us the power to do it. Hallelujah. Wonderful counselor. Bless his name. Saying no human counselor can do that. 
that's where our, our, our abilities end. It hit a brick wall. Jesus tells us what to do and gives us the power to do it. Bless his name. Number four, God, got to speed up. Romans 11, 26 and 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He is our deliverer. Jesus is our deliverer. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, you know that this was the recurring theme in the book of Judges. After Joshua died, the people did what was right in their own eyes and began to serve false gods. And a whole generation grew up that did not know the Lord nor his mighty work on their behalf. How sad is that? How sad is that? They would forget God and go into rebellious idolatry. They would turn from their true deliverer, capital D, to false little d deliverers. In other words, idols. In this month's Table Talk magazine, biblical counselor Christina Fox writes about this. This is in this month's Table Talk. Okay? Highly recommend Table Talk if you, if you don't pick that up. I highly recommend that. Okay? She says this, we do the same thing when we place our own hope in anything apart from Christ. When we look to material things to comfort us in the stresses of life. When we look to our work to give our life meaning and purpose. When we look to other people or experiences for, for fulfillment. In all these ways and more, when we drink from the well of idolatry, we are always left thirsty. For no idol can satisfy hearts that were designed to love and worship God alone. No idol can deliver the goods. It may give you a temporary high and make you think you're on the right track. But ultimately, nothing that you put in the place of Jesus can satisfy our soul. Only Jesus can. Going back to Judges, we see that God would always raise up a human little d deliverer, a judge to rescue them. Judges 2.16 says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. You know, people like Othniel and Ehud. Remember Ehud? Gabe, here's another great verse for you for, that you never, you'll never see in a at a, at a Christian bookstore, okay? Uh, in, in Judges, I think, chapter 3, the story of Ehud, and he killed the king Eglon, and it said the, 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 the hilt of the... He, he, he stabbed him in the gut, and the hilt of the sword went over the fat because Eglon was fat, and the dung came out. So there's a great cross-stitch verse for you from Judges chapter 3, <laughs> okay? Uh, but people like Othniel and, and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah, when the men were wimping out... Okay, listen, ladies, don't use Deborah as an argument for men pastors. Okay, please don't do that. Okay, that story is about wimpy men. Okay, who weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. Okay, 
So, so Deborah Barak, who she had to kind of prod to do the right thing and to get up there and fight the battle. And uh, Gideon, Gideon, Judges 6, and then on Sam. Okay, you know all those judges. These judges, these human judges, in all, in all their human frailties and faults, man, some bad fault. Read Samson. Have you ever read Samson? Read that guy. Ugh. Okay, Th- they were terrible. But they temporarily delivered Israel when they were in idolatry. So who are those human, frail, faulty, sinful judges ultimately pointing us to? The ultimate deliverer, Jesus. They were foreshadowings of Jesus. Psalm 4017, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. So who is your ultimate help? Who do you turn to when things go bad? Who is your ultimate deliverer? Only Jesus can fit the bill. Last one, number five. Jesus is the door. John chapter 10, verses 7 and 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, there's the repetition. So listen up. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture, rest, comfort, food, nourishment. Yes. By using this analogy of the door, Jesus is telling us that he is the means. Listen, the only means. He is the door. Not a door. He's the door. The only means of access to salvation and all things pertaining to life and godliness found in that pasture, in the pasture of God. He's the door. The door. Entrance, the only entrance, not a and the entrance into abundant eternal life. Now, what are some things? What does a door imply? What is it? Well, it implies there's a barrier there. There's a wall. I've never seen a door just standing there. You know, with nothing. Doors are put in walls. Doors are put in barriers so you can go through the barrier. And that barrier that separated us from God was, you know, sin. Jesus eliminates that barrier. He's the door. And what do you do with a door? You go through it, right? This is, boy, isn't this hard stuff? This is so deep. This is heavy-duty theology, right? You go through a door. Have you ever thought about all the scriptures about Jesus that had the word through in it? That'd be a great study. Get your, get your, uh, your concordance out, put in through, see how many New Testament verses come up 
or through Jesus. You know, here's a few examples. That Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the door. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him. Through our door. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When you go through the door of Jesus, you go into rejoicing. Here's another one, Romans 5.11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus is the door to reconciliation with God. The only door Ephesians 1.5, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He is the door of adoption. That's a good study for you. Through, how many verses connect the word through with Jesus who is our door? Real quick, let's consider the characteristics of this door. I'm just going to mention them quickly, okay? Four characteristics of this door. Number one, it's open. It's open, beloved. Wide open. No lock, no deadbolt. You can enter freely. You don't have to pay an entry fee. You don't have to buy a ticket. You can go through it by grace through faith. Admission is free because guess what? Admission has already been paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. But... It will cost you everything. So that doesn't make sense. That's one of those great paradoxes. Entry is free, but it will cost you everything because as you enter, according to Romans 12, you must present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. So it's open, free, but costly. Number two, it's narrow. It's narrow. One person at a time, pointing us to the individuality of salvation. There is no group entry. You don't walk in with your parents. You don't walk in with your friends. It's narrow. Only you fit through. Okay? What did Jesus say? Wide is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the way that leads to life. Also, the narrowness of this door implies that you can't bring your baggage. You can't bring your baggage. Only you will fit. You must check your baggage, especially your baggage of sin at Calvary. You must also check your baggage of personal merit and self-salvation. That won't fit in either. Nothing in your hands can you bring. But only to the cross, you must cling. This door is open. This door is narrow. Third, it's low. It's low. The top of it is low. You must bow in repentance to enter. Only the humble enter. Only those who know they can't save themselves. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And finally, listen. Oh, gosh. It's on street level. It's on street. It's not at the top of stairs. It's on street level. You come as you are. You come as you are. You don't have to climb the ladder of self-improvement. 
It's open for sinners as sinners. And the minute you walk in, God, God begins to make you like his son in that glorious pasture. Have you entered God's pasture through the door of Jesus? If not, today is the day. Please don't wait any longer. Final word this morning from Spurgeon. If you cannot say, not on your sermon sheet, by the way. This is a midnight quote, okay? Sermon sheet's already printed. Sorry. If you cannot say, Jesus is precious to me. I do not care to what church you belong or for what creed you are ready to die. You do not know the truth of God unless the person of Christ is dear to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, become more dear to all of us. May we love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. We praise you as the Christ, as the cornerstone of our lives, as our wonderful counselor who guides us and lovingly directs us and redirects us. as our deliverer who delivered us from the clutches of sin, death, and hell, and is the initial door of our salvation. We will never forget walking through that door, even if we don't know an exact date. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. We pray your blessing now on our time of communion with him. And may he be increasingly dear to us. In his name we pray. Amen.